All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Alert and Oriented. Um, before we get started, we just want to acknowledge um, one of the major events occurring in the world right now. Um, Derek Chauvin was held accountable for his actions. This isn't justice for George Floyd, but hopefully it's a start to greater systemic change. And I just want to echo what Kevin just said. Um, today, today's not the end. Today's really just the beginning. This just cannot be a one-off. This has to be a first step. So, uh, so we really felt it was important that we, that we acknowledge this today. All right. So this excellent medical student led podcast is for educational purposes only, and it's not intended to be medical advice under any circumstance. So this is who we are. I'm Kevin. Uh, I'm an M3, soon to be M4. I plan to go into internal medicine. Uh, over COVID, I picked up mixology as a hobby. And then um, Dr. Abrams, our co-founder here, I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, for those of you guys I don't know, my name's Rich Abrams. Um, I am a general internist here. I've been here for many, many, many years. Um, current Dean for the Learning Environment, former program director. Um, really, my sort of medical passion is, uh, is in clinical reasoning and diagnosis. Um, my fun fact, you can see there, I am a, uh, I'm, I'm in sort of an avid, cycling tourist. This is a picture of my daughter and I finishing a, 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 a trip from Pittsburgh to Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. And then we got Tommy. Uh, so yeah, I'm Tommy King. I'm uh, about to be graduate of Rush Medical College um, and starting internal medicine residency here at Rush uh, in July, which I'm very thrilled about. Um, uh, my career plans, uh, hopefully infectious disease down the line after residency. I'm also interested in medical education, which is why I reached out to be a part of this, uh, this podcast. Um, and my fun fact is I hope to visit all the national parks in the U.S. in my life. Um, I went to nine in one trip earlier this fall, and I'm going to like another seven or eight before I start residency. So it's awesome. All right. Now we have our discussants, the two brave um, <laughs> colleagues that are going to take this on first. We have Maddie. I'm uh, Maddie. She's an M3, I think, still going into OB-GYN. Yeah, how'd you know? Uh, we talked. Um, and then we have Bijan, an M3, who's planning to go into psych, I think, still. I don't know where you got that information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, well, we're going to kick things off. Um, just to fill you guys in, we're going to be giving Bijan and Maddie chunks of information from a case that Dr. Abrams and I saw on the general medicine floor. Um, all that they know is that the chief complaint is chest heaviness, and I texted them that yesterday. <laughs> so Alquat 1 is, we have a 23-year-old female. She presented to the emergency room with a one-week history of chest heaviness and dyspnea. What are you immediately worried about? You want to take it or should I? Go ahead. I'll take it? Yeah. 23-year-old, one-week history of chest heaviness and dyspnea. 
Uh, currently being on psych, one thing that comes to mind is possibly uh, have like anxiety or panic attacks. Um, that's a big one for me. Anything else that comes to mind for you, Maddie? It's an OB gyne diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I've got a lot with that. Um, one week history of chest heaviness and dyspnea. Um, I guess I wouldn't want to miss something cardiac related. Sure. What are some of the more acute, emergent things you'd be worried about? Some type of arrhythmia. Uh, maybe if she had some. It seems weird that it was just one week, but maybe if she has some asthma that's just worsening acutely. A PE is something you would also be more acute that you you wouldn't want to miss. Sure. Really. Okay. Um, what other things are you looking out for at this point? Like if, if you were suspicious for a cardiac event, what, what other kind of things would you be looking for? Um, I'd want to see her vitals, um, see if there's anything abnormal, uh, tachycardia. I think she's breathing very quickly, hypnea. I want to know if it gets worse or what, what makes it worse? What makes it better? Does it get worse with activity? Um, does she have any syncopal episodes? Sure. Um, palpitations associated with it. Um, also, does it get worse with this, uh, with uh, breathing in? Okay. Like plur All right. We're going to throw in some, some teaching points in here too, while we're going at it. So we like to think of more emergent causes of chest pain. And there's the four plus two plus two mnemonic that I find really helpful. And you can think of it in buckets. There's the cardiac bucket, the pulmonary bucket, and the esophageal bucket. Um, in the cardiac bucket, the thing, the four things you really don't want to miss are an ACS, like a MI, uh, aortic dissection, cardiac tamponade, Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy. And working those up would involve things like EKG, troponin, um, or more intense imaging like an echo. Or then there's the pulmonary bucket where um, Maddie brought up something like a PE. There's also pneumothorax. And then some things that we kind of often forget to remember, there, there still could be some esophageal causes. Mm -hmm. And something like a rupture or a food impaction could certainly cause um, acute chest pain. Aliquot too. So she has, a, <laughs> she has a past history of Graves' disease. She was treated with methimazole, and she subsequently became hypothyroid. A month ago, she had a spontaneous abortion at 20 weeks. And then four days before this admission, she saw her cardiologist. She had intermittent palpitations that she'd been experiencing for the past three months. She was able to get an EKG done. It was normal. An echo was ordered. Didn't get the chance to complete it. She denied fever and cough, no leg swelling, no headache. Her current meds, she's on levothyroxine. She's not on any oral contraceptives. She has no allergies. Her family history was unremarkable. Um, no recent alcohol use and has never used tobacco products or recreational drugs. The remainder of her social history was unremarkable. Are you guys still worried about anything emergent at this point? Nothing is jumping out at me. Anything with you? No, it's, I mean, the, the fact that she went to a cardiologist um, for intermittent palpitations um, four days ago is certainly concerning, um, but it's reassuring to know that an EKG was normal at the time. I would like to know, um, I, like, 
maybe she does have some kind of thyroid function coming back. I'd be worried that if she's taking the levothyroxine and she has some remnant thyroid function that those could compound and she might have some kind of hyperthyroidism induced uh, arrhythmia going on. I know like AFib is a big one you want to worry about. Sure. Um, so I would, I was thinking maybe some kind of like Holter monitor, but those are, that, that's like the main like yeah. thing that jumps out at me. So you guys are doing a great job so far. And, and I promised you before that you would come to the right answer on this case. One of the things I, I would ask, maybe I'll ask you this question, Maddie, again, is the, is, is the future, is the future ob and that is this spontaneous abortion at 20 weeks that happened a month ago. Mm. Does that, does that trigger any thoughts in you? Well, I can phrase it another way. Is there, is there anything that you might be a little more worried about now? Any of those like um, sort of acute causes of chest pain we were talking about? I mean, I, because she, she was um, pregnant at one point, I guess I'd be more concerned that she, she had a hypercoagulable state, um, which would then lead me to think, you know, maybe more of that PE thing needs to be definitively ruled out. Very awesome. Um, hey, Tommy, let's, let's check in with you. Anything in the chat worth sharing? Um, so I haven't gotten any questions. I've got someone from Alice Burgess. Yeah. So, um, so Alice is talking about antiphospholipid antibody syndrome with cardiac manifestations. Um, so that's something that it can cause you to be in a hypercoagulable state. So that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, so that's, that was kind of one, one thought that I was trying to bring up. I think that's a good thought. Um, the other thing is, is remember that anti-cardiolipid antibody syndrome is associated with another disease that can cause chest pain in people for other reasons, which is... I was thinking about lupus. Sure, that's um, perfect. And I know it can cause a couple, it can cause arrhythmias and pericarditis and all those kind of things. So I was wondering about that too. What do you think about her demographics? with lupus or her demographics again that's what i'm getting at oh we're, i didn't know if we were giving them um i mean she's a, she's a young woman and that's exactly exactly the the age range where you expect to see it and, and gender so something i wanted to to bring up and, and this is true for every case it's you got to really differentiate between what is signal and what is noise so we're early in this case um, she's got this past history of graves. She had a spontaneous abortion and she has a three month history of palpitations. So are these going to be contributing factors or we can just keep them in mind. And at the same time, we push them to the side until we can better synthesize the information. Um, so I thought this would be a good point now to talk about non-emerging causes of chest pain. We're still, we're still thinking about emerging causes, but we know now there's more of a setting where this has been an ongoing thing. It's not something necessarily acute. So I think two good buckets for non-emergent chest pain. Um, you can think about it superficially. So there's MSK etiologies like costochondritis or rib fracture. You can have a skin etiology that's a board favorite, I feel like, with herpes zoster. Um, and then nervous, some, something like the thoracic radiculopathy. Then there's some, the deeper causes, the, the visceral etiologies, there's pulmonary, you can be thinking about pneumonia or diaphragmatic hernia, 
more indolent cardiac causes like a heart failure picture or aortic stenosis. And then anatomically, there's the mediastinum, so something like a mass. And then another popular board one is a GI etiology. So uh, stuff like spasm, reflux, or peptic ulcers causing radiating pain where the patient believes it's chest pain. All right, let's move on to aliquot three. You guys are doing great. I would, al- I would also want to mention um, things like pericarditis and that non-emergent um, cause because it can definitely have um, sequela after you get pericarditis. Um, however, it's not one of those things that you're, you know, you don't need to get them to the cath lab in the next hour. You don't need to get a CTAB and push TPA, CTAP and push TPA. Um, so that's, that was just one, one thing I wanted to mention, one especially other, in this age group, right? Younger one, person. One other thing I'll say, and, and this goes back to what, what, what both Kevin and Tommy have talked about. And one way to organize your thoughts in a case like this is, well, what are the really horrible things that, that yeah. you did first? And now as I look back at you guys, I say, boy, do you think this, this 23-year-old woman is having an acute coronary syndrome right now? Not impossible, but unlikely. And some of these other pieces seem to bubble up a little more, at least in my mind. Um, so it's a great place to start. And we're going to go to the physical exam now. And remember this, a physical exam is really sort of your first set of diagnostic tests where everybody's interested in blood work and imaging and things like that. But, but this really is, is the first diagnostic test that you do. Right. Uh, I love that point, Dr. Abrams, um, you know, from, you know, for someone going into internal medicine, um, when you're, co- especially for you M1s and M2s, when you're coming up with a differential, you want to think about what, what you can't miss for the main problem, um, and also what's most likely. So obviously you want to consider things like MI in this patient, et cetera. Um, but you definitely want to think about what, it, what is most likely going on, right? Um, not necessarily, um, not necessarily like what, what would be the most concerning. It's all important to, to consider, but that's how I like to kind of think about my differentials and, and also offer like alternative explanations. Thanks, Tommy. You know, that's great and helpful, helpful to remember. All right, some vitals. She was afebrile. Her respiratory rate was 18. Her pulse was 96. Her blood pressure was 128 over 92. She was satting 100% on room air. She's obese. Her BMI was 38. Um, She's awake and alert and no apparent distress. Neck was supple, no JVD, no thyromegaly, no lymphadenopathy. Lungs, no increased work of breathing. She was cleared auscultation bilaterally, heart, regular rate and rhythm, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. Although the cardiology visit from a few days ago noted a two out of six murmur. Her abdominal exam was normal, skin, no rash, MSK, and neuro exam were also normal. So this is a pretty unremarkable physical exam. It doesn't really help us push the needle towards any diagnosis or even really an organ system at this point. So um, what are your guys' thoughts right now? What kind of labs and imaging would you be interested in getting right off the bat? Pretty curious that there was a uh, murmur four days ago noted, but none now. 
Am I assuming I'm as good as a cardiologist? <laughs> Picking up a murmur? We always think about what causes new murmurs. We don't think about what causes murmurs to go away. Exactly. Right? Probably it's 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 the it's the move from a cardiologist to a, to a you know an internist or a, a resident or a medical student. I'll disappear at that time. But before you go on to asking the labs, the exam is both helpful and not helpful, mm -hmm. right? So there's certain things it clearly doesn't rule out, um, but there's things that 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 make that that become less likely based upon this exam. I'm right? um, sorry, um, I'm leaning away from PE just because I mean she's adding 100% on room air, um, no increased work of breathing, so I'm I'm a little and I'm, she's. She's a little tachycardic. She's not overly so. 96 is kind of borderline, um, but I'm kind of, that's becoming lower on my, on my um, differential. If, if I may offer a quick, a quick thought on that. Um, so the most common um, physical exam finding of PE is just isolated tach tachycardia. Um, so you have your S1, Q3, T3, um, you know, still the most common thing is, is just sinus tachycardia. Um, and these are patients that they can look fine one minute and be gone the next. So if you're suspicious of PE, you know, whether it's based on your well score, your clinical picture, um, that's definitely something to not, um, always dismiss. Would you consider 96 isolated tachycardia? No, te technically no. Um, that it was just, um, I didn't, I didn't mean to say, no, say no, I was curious. Maddie. Um, but, um, so no, it's, it's obviously technically within normal, it's upper limit of normal. Um, but, um, just the, the point that, you know, the, these patients can look okay and then look not okay very fast. Any burning labs or imaging you guys would be interested? Um, I would want a chest x-ray and probably a D dimer, D -dimer. Yeah. for sure. I like, I like how you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Um, can we throw in a CBC CMP while we're at it? You know it. <laughs> <laughs> you get what you ask for. So CMP was normal. Um, hemoglobin, white blood cells, and platelets were also normal. Her coag was normal. TSH, um, we remember her history of graves, but TSH was in within normal limits. Um, COVID negative, then that's a normal lab, I guess. Now, uh, she, she isn't pregnant. Her troponin was negative and there's that D dimer and it was 0.99. Mm. EKG was normal. Chest x-ray, the read was no acute cardiopulmonary process. Before we get to the, the, the standout, what do you guys think about the negative troponin? So it's a good thing. Are you surprised? I guess <laughs> uh, not really. I wasn't suspecting right. right heart strain on her. Okay. And now, what do you think about the elevated D dimer? It's elevated, but it's not super elevated, so it's kind of it's hard. And, and what I've what I've learned about D dimer is that um, it's not super specific. Um, so it could be due to a lot of different things. Exact someone. Right. So it's, it's a sensitive test, but it's not specific, um, which is what Lauren uh, in the chat is, is basically saying, which saying it can rule out, rule it out. But um, if it's positive, um, it doesn't necessarily mean much, which is why 
Um, it's not a test you get if your pretest probability is very high. Um, it's something um, you use if your pretest probability is a little more lower, and then you would pursue a more um, expensive or invasive diagnostic test like a um, CT angio. Mm -hmm. So I, I always get sensitivity, specificity, <laughs> and what they what's their utility mixed up. So I, I try to remember in the moment that snout. So a highly sensitive test, a negative result rules it out. So that's a that's what a PE and D dimer that that's how they best go together. Um, whereas specificity, something that's highly specific, a positive result rules it in. So just to that's spin, right? Spin, it's now spin, spin. spin. So for D dimers and PE, the it's ninety nine point five percent sensitive, but only forty one percent specific. So it's great to rule out, like you guys said. So considering all this, what are you most suspicious for now, and what do you want to rule out or order next? Well, I'm also seeing she has an elevated white count. Is that right? Yes. Slightly. Slightly. Um, I also want to clarify in terms of her presentation. This is a one week history of uh, worsening dyspnea. Like, is, is it getting worse or has it like, has it been resolving? Because then it's possible that she did have a PE, but it's self-resolved. Mm -hmm. um, and this might be right, but I feel like if you've had a PE, you could still, it could be associated with an elevated white count. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. it's an inflammatory state right. be associated with an elevated white count. Right. So I still feel like this could have been, I think you said it like a, she might've had a PE in the past. Um, Especially with that hypercoagulable state. Right. With the hypercoagulable state. So that's still my number one as of right now. I don't know if you. No, I, but I do yeah. think the white the white count is important to note, and I think Dr. Abrams, you just mentioned an inflammatory condition, and that's something we we haven't really talked about. Right, um, right. Just it, also, I mean, she she was afebrile, but infection um, is always something to think of with white blood cell count as right. well. Right, right. So you guys are again, you guys are are, are doing great. You're moving towards the diagnosis. Again, you'll, you'll get in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> I do think, I think it, one of the things that maybe you have a lot of evidence of to this point is that is everything seems to be pulling away from the heart, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so your exam, maybe with that, who knows what to make of that, that murmur before, but she's got a normal EKG. She doesn't have her troponins are negative. As best we can tell, she doesn't have pericarditis, which would be the one cardiac condition that would be harder to rule out, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you'd see it on the EKG, right? So there's characteristic EKG findings of pericarditis, physical exam, maybe maybe the cardiologist didn't <laughs> actually hear a murmur was a rub that, a rub that they heard, but nah, probably not. And again, with the troponin being negative, it seems like we're getting off the, the, the heart piece of this and moving into another part of what Kevin had put up in that differential diagnosis of chest pain. Right. I want to, in that, in that vein, I thought this would be another time for a, a good time for another 
sort of little little pearl. Um, and this this is something I learned on my emergency medicine rotation. Um, so there's this tool um, using the emergency room called the Heart Score, which is which basically you um, can use to determine the risk of um, you know if someone is having an ACS type event if you're not quite sure. Um, so it's based on the history, EKG findings, the patient's age. Um, how, how many risk factors they have, and then what your initial troponin is. Um, so that's a good way to sort of um, move the needle, um, so to speak, um, on, on these patients, if you're not exactly like sure um, sort of where, where they fall on, on, on like likelihood in terms of ACS. I think our panel or our discussants are very correct in saying that this is someone we're not quite as concerned with ACS and given her age, lack of risk factors, um, and you know, kind of lack of a true anginal story, but um, I thought that that's something you guys can definitely like look up and, and use on the floors as well. Tommy, I don't know that clinical prediction rule, but I, I imagine she's about as low as you could possibly. Her <laughs> score would be pretty she is, low. She is low, low, low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. all right. Like, like you guys have said, we were worried about a PE too. So CTA was next and it was negative for acute pulmonary embolism. However, there was this incidental right-sided lobulated anterior mediastinal mass. Oh, no. Measuring 6 oh, by 3.5 by 5. Here we go. Five, five, we go. <laughs> uh, no thyromegaly. Uh, and she had no enlarged lymph nodes. Because I think the two of us went down to look at that, that x-ray. We did. And then a couple weeks later, I with, the, with everything done, I brought the case back to the exact same radiologist and she insisted that this was actually an abnormal x-ray. Mm. And, and I'm going to walk up here just to point out to you guys that that, that was the, this area here should almost always be concave here. Mm. And that little convexity was the, was the hint that the, the mass was there. But it, huh. that, that's hindsight bias. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not a radiologist, but I, am, I attempted to circle what I think is bad. <laughs> the first image is a coronal, so slicing down, and then the axial. And I've circled what I think is the, this mass that they're seeing. The CTA is negative for PE. We have an incidental anterior mediastinal mass. Now, what are you worried about? Four T's. Tell me about them. Thymoma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Terrible lymphoma. Yeah. Um, Something with the thyroid is one of them. The thyroid mass, and then what was the other one? Thymoma, thyroid, terrible, the terrible lymphoma. What was the other one? Teratoma. Teratoma, <laughs> classic. Oh, classic. Um, so she's 23. What other things would you guys be looking out for now that you know she has an anterior mediastinal mass? What kind of other things would support any of these as being a diagnosis? Like what, what else in the clinical picture? Hmm. I'm just talking in general, not necessarily her case. Oh, got but, it. but okay. let's say thymoma. What other things would support, would, would push your th thinking more along that line? For thymoma. Isn't there a history of, um, um, there's a thymoma with one of the, um, Musculoskeletal diseases. Myasthenia. Myasthenia gravis. Yep. Right. Yep. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So thymoma, they can be peritoneoplastic. They're often associated with myasthenia gravis or a pure red cell aplasia. Um, That's right. Yeah. 
How about with the thyroid? A previous history of thyroid issues um, sure. or radiation of some sort. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Or uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, but she's 23. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then a teratoma. There's, there's not really any telltale signs with this one. I, I think it's more, you'd see more of like a mass effect type picture. And how about terrible lymphoma? Abnormal white count. Yes. Any symptoms you'd be, um, you More know, like expecting to see? B-type symptoms, um, you know, weight loss, um, fevers, that kind of thing. Yeah. The Anyone know the most common symptom in, uh, well, never mind. I'll save that one. Ooh. All right, let's so, uh, before that go back to your last slide again, yeah, because because I think there's more information on there than just the the mass. Mm. So I think why with thyroid not enlarged and no enlarged lymph nodes, I'm leaning away from the lymphoma and from the thyroid cause. Okay. Um, and and what 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 what's in a teratoma? Teratoma, you'd want to see. I, I'd expect to see. I mean, there's. You can have hair, you can have calcifications, teeth. Um, and I, I don't see, I'm not also not a radiologist, Kevin, but I don't see. You don't see a tooth? No, I don't <laughs> see any calcifications. Um, so I guess leaning away from that, which would, would then leave a, a thymoma. I, that's exactly what we thought. Oh, no. Um, what would you do? You send her home? Yeah. Who would you call? <laughs> would I call for a thymoma? <laughs> Endocrinologist. Uh, <laughs> well, how do you figure out if it what it is? I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're just we're speculating, right? We gotta. I think would we need some more um, some more imaging? That would be. I mean, would an MRI do anything for us in this case? It so could, I'm yeah, I'm seeing something in the chat. Um, so Lauren's saying biopsy, right? So. With this kind of thing, I mean, really with any, anytime you have some sort of solid abnormality in the body, for the most part, you want to biopsy it. You want to get some tissue and find out what it is because the management for all these things, right, is going to be pretty different. Um, so uh, you, you really like kind of want to know specifically what you're dealing with, right? We contacted CT Surge. They felt that given the size of the mass that a biopsy was indicated, they were in, in real time, they were most worried about mass effect. Mm -hmm. So the following day she was taken down to IR and they did a, a needle biopsy. Um, this next aliquots, the, the last bit of information you guys are going to get. And then we're going to ask you, you two, and then the chat to put your nickel down on what you guys think the diagnosis might be. I'm not a radiologist and I'm not a pathologist. Oh, come on. <laughs> there it is. But I will, I will, when I saw this, what I see is a bunch of inflammatory cells here Yeah. in the setting of something more chronic. There's a bunch of pink stuff. So just kind of supports that whatever is going on has kind of happened. It has been happening for some time and that it's reactive. We'll zoom in. Um, I'll let you guys just kind of walk through this if you can. Just, I guess, observations. I mean, I'm kind of looking from afar. Um, 
I feel like I'm seeing lymphocytes. I would say this is in the setting of chronic inflammation. A lot of little blue cells. A lot of little blue cells, as probably the pathology report said. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I see anything else that's like popping out at me. Maddie, anything? Listen, and I'm not a pathologist, so I'm <laughs> happy to, to say that. But, but so assuming we've excluded thyroid and, ex, and, ex, and assuming we've excluded teratoma, mm -hmm. right? I think that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. and, and so in some ways it's, you know, what is the thymus? I mean, it's a weird, seems like a weird question. You go to medical school and you study the thymus and then you never talk about it again. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't expect a 23 year old necessarily to have a thymus, correct? So that actually, that's, that is a great question. And that was actually one of the questions that we had, but, but what's in the thymus? A lot of fat and uh, T cells. T cells. Yeah. yeah. So lymphoid tissue is in there. And, and usually when we think of lymphoid tissue, don't we think it be of it being organized in a certain way? Yeah, kind of into like germal centers, into, into follicles, into yeah. lymphoid follicles. And now, if you back up and, and you and you and you squirt back and you look at this, do you guys see any organization of that whatsoever? No, not too much. No, because I think you normally see it kind of like a it's there's circles and there's like either one's darker and one's lighter, and I don't see that at all. And yeah. as Kevin says, you see all this kind of pink stuff and it's just kind of infiltrating yeah. through there. And so, again, it's been 40 years since I took histology, but, but, but <laughs> I don't remember this being the histology of the thymus gland, which again, as I say, is there's a little bit of connective tissue and a lot of this lymphoid tissue in there. Um, again, I, I'll say this, I mean, in the beginning, we thought, you know, one of our questions to the radiologist is, she is young. You're right, yeah, but but I mean, she's she's I'm sorry, she's not like a little kid, but she's you know 23. And how much residual thymus tissue do you have at age 23? So here's this picture again. I have one more, and it was a special staining done for two cell markers, and I'll tell you them, and then I'll ask you guys to clue me in on what you think the diagnosis is, and same with the chat. So the, this staining was positive for CD30 and partially positive for CD15. Um, next alpha will reveal the diagnosis. All right. <laughs> Are those markers for T cells? I think it's uh, Hodgkin's. Uh, T cells? This is Hodgkin's, right? <laughs> <laughs> what makes you think that? Oh, I don't know. The <laughs> CD15, CD30. Yeah, yeah. Those, I mean, uh, what, what else was it? The owl cells? Yeah, we can go back real yeah, quick. Yeah, we go back. The, oh. the, the pathology report, which I'll show in a second, might have mentioned a pathognomonic cell in there scattered throughout. You know, I think we mentioned the little, the little blue cells, but then there's mm. also kind of the larger ones that almost look like they're made up of multiple. Um, and I think that's kind of what I think they're the uh, the owl cells. The Reed Sternberg cell. Yeah. But you guys, you, you did great. You're thinking along the right path. <laughs> I think guys are fantastic. I think CD15, CD30 really helped out. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the path report. This was um, sclerotic tissue. 
with lymphoid infiltrate composed of a mixed inflammatory picture. Um, there was occasional large Reed Sternberg cells, so the owl eye cells. They were positive, like I said, for CD30 and partially for CD15. The final diagnosis was classic Hodgkin's lymphoma, nodular sclerosing type. So you guys were great. I knew you'd get the diagnosis <laughs> in this case. I was a hundred percent sure. She should have just come in with her inflammatory the marker. <laughs> um, great job, guys. Uh, I'm sure, like us, you didn't think this would be a Hodgkin's case when you had a, a young female with a week of chest heaviness. Um, everything in the beginning was pointing towards something else. Um, but but your reasoning was great, and you you kept things in mind and used the information given to you to kind of narrow your thoughts, and you, you stayed on the right road. So just good job, guys. Thank you. Anything to add, Dr. Abrams? So I thought you guys were fabulous. Um, and, and I think one of the things that, whether it's you guys or anybody who's listening or anyone, is that is that you guys do know how to go through these processes and do this? I mean, I know we feel pressure all the time to do this, but but you were able to go through this in a logical way. You thought about all the important things, and then you were able to narrow things down to 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 really what the diagnosis of the case was. And and so again, I think that. This is one of the most important skills that you do in medical school, in residency, as an attending. I, I also think that practicing this stuff really, really helps. And, and I'm going to say for myself that, you know, I something like this and just Kevin and I have talked about this, just talking about cases is a, is a great thing. Yeah. And talking and practicing is, is, is really, really a great thing. I do have one last thing I want to say because I, I I got another thing that I really love, and that's medical history. And I've got a little metal medical history piece from this case. I'm gonna have to pump the brakes on you real yep. quick there, Dr. Abrams. I'm gonna let Tommy, oh, Tommy. hit us with some Hodgkin's. Oh, Tommy's gonna do oh, his point first. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is this is great. So um yeah, I wanted to highlight a few things about um Hodgkin's lymphoma, we kind of already talked about CD15 and CD30, the Reed Sternberg cells. Um, it's not always associated with EBV. It's most commonly um, going to be associated with EBV and immunosuppressed patients. So think your AIDS patients, your um, patients on chemotherapy um, and this bimodal distribution. So you're going to see it in patients or between age 15 and 30, and then, you know, older than 55 to 60. Um, so one of those interest, kind of an interesting uh, distribution. Um, and for some of the younger students who might not uh, know what we mean, when we say B symptoms. So those are kind of your systemic symptoms. So fever, night sweats, weight loss, chills, um, things like that. Um, the most common symptom, which I tried to ask the uh, discussants earlier, but didn't want to give it away, um, is the, is the painless lymphadenopathy. Um, and an interesting, um, factor pearl is that patients will say that the, um, that the lymph nodes will become painful when they drink alcohol. Um, and so patients will like begin avoiding, uh, alcohol, um, even if they don't realize they have this diagnosis, cause they'll have, um, 
um, and they'll have, they'll have the pain in the lymph nodes and it's most often mediastinal is the most common place to, to find it. Um, some lab findings, you might have elevated, el elevated LDH and, um, peripheral eosinophilia as well. Um, you've got different types of Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'm not going to pretend to know what, know that what they all are, but I would assume based on their histological, uh, features, um, this patient had nodular sclerosing, um, and then obviously you want to, uh, biopsy the mass or the lymph node to get some tissue. Um, and then you can do your ABVD chemotherapy. Um, in terms of, uh, following these patients, you can use a, a PET scan, um, which is a useful tool to identify if there's any mets from the disease. Um, but keep in mind it, it'll also sometimes light up high metabolic demand organs, such as the brain, kidney, and the liver. Um, Finally, some complications you might be able to see, um, superior vena cava syndrome. Um, I think Kevin mentioned something about, um, mass effect. So, um, what that would mean if anyone, uh, is unfamiliar is basically like obstruction of the nerves and the blood vessels, um, in the upper part of the thorax, um, and then tumor lysis syndrome. Um, and then apparently associated with minimal change disease as well. So, um, I, let me see if I have, I think that's everything. So kind of a mix of what was on the slide and I threw a few more things in there. So. Thanks, Tommy. Does the, the, any board exam we ever take, there'll always be some Hodgkins on there. And this, this is a good reminder for everyone studying. I, just, I will share one quick story about a patient I saw an ID. Um, this was a patient with Hodgkin's disease who was being treated for, um, who was being treated with a, a chemotherapy regimen. Um, and had a new, um, thoracic mass of mediastinal mass. Um, and so the concern was, was this a reoccurrence of disease or was this like an opera, like an opportunistic infection? Um, and it ended up being, um, uh, not crypto. Um, it ended up being coxie, um, patient traveled to Arizona. So another, you know, kind of important thing to just keep, a, again, keep a broad differential. Um, you never know what you're going to find. So kind of a cool, cool case. And then, uh, Regarding this case, I was, I just checked up on how the patient's doing. Um, I think you, you, you may have looked more recently than I have. And, and, and Tommy really just walked you through sort of everything that was yeah. done. She was, she was staged exactly how you said. Um, and I think she had a PET CT and it showed that everything was localized to her. Everything was localized to a mediastinum. I, one of the things that was a learning point for me was sort of the lack of lymphadenopathy, any other lymphadenopathy in her chest, which at least is maybe one of you guys can tell me, which is consistent with the nodular sclerosing Hodgkin's. So that's, that, that's very consistent with that. And she's about to start her ABVD therapy. That's she, she did four days ago. I just saw, yeah. So she's just getting started on the chemo. And um, from what I remember, her prognosis will be pretty good. She should have a great prognosis, actually. Well, All right. Um, Dr. Abrams is going to share a story about. Yep. Dr. One Jeffrey. last thing. You don't have to read all of this, but uh, and, I, and I'll, I'll make it quick since we're getting to the end of the hour. Um, as I said, I, I actually really love medical history. And and to me, the interesting part of this story is the is the read in the Reed Sternberg cell. <laughs> and so that is named after Dr. Dorothy Reed, who, uh, 
who, what makes her interesting to me is she was one of the first women to be accepted at Johns Hopkins Medical School. So this is, the, this is in the late 1890s when the medical school opened. And, and there's a huge history around why Johns Hopkins was one of the first co-educational medical schools in the country. And, and we won't go into that. Um, let me just say that uh, it was hard to be a woman in medical school. It's hard now, and it was really hard back in the back in the 1800s. I'm, I'm actually reading a book about Dorothy Blackwell. Yep, that's her name. Oh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first female physician to go to medical school in the U.S. And, and that's 50 years before this. But anyhow, so uh, so Dorothy Reed shows up on campus first day. She runs into this well-dressed man who uh, asked her if she was entering medical school. And, uh, it, it, and when she said yes, he said, don't go home. <laughs> and, and it actually turned out that that person was William Osler, who was sort of considered to be the, you know, the father of modern medicine. Um, and, and as she went through school, she was at the top of her class. And it turned out that the top four people in the Johns Hopkins graduating class were allowed to do their internship with William Osler. And so, and so Dorothy Reed was one of those people. Um, she had a colleague who, uh, who asked her to, uh, you know, to step aside so that he could do it. And uh, she said no, and she accepted Osler's offer. And you can see here, um, she had the satisfaction. She and she was a prolific writer, also. I mean, so cool. Um, so as it says here, I, in June 1900, I left Baltimore with high hopes. I had the satisfaction of having worked hard. So the reward of internship of Dr. Osler seemed deserved. So after her internship, she actually went with. She actually did a fellowship with another sort of one of the great founders of. Uh, of, of Johns Hopkins, you know, the, the medical school, which is William Welch. So he was a pathologist there. And that's where she did her research on Hodgkin's disease. And so she's the one who identified the, the cell. And, and actually the cell was initially called the Dorothy Reed cell. And it was only years later that they changed it to the Reed Sternberg cell because this guy, Carl Sternberg had described it before her. Of course, he thought that it was because of tuberculosis, which is what everybody thought Hodgkin's was before Dorothy Reed figured what it was up, figured it out. And she did it by she she had a rabbit model and she in fact she uh, inoculated their lymph nodes and saw that essentially they didn't get get tuberculosis. So she was the one who sort of separated that out. She also, you know, was the first one to to show that, you know. It was a disease of demographics. The other piece that she found that she discovered was, was that if you injected people with Hodgkin's with, you know, with tuberculin material, they had no response at a time when most people had been infected with tuberculosis. So that's what we call energy now. And so she was the one who concluded again that it was an infection. That time she called it a process. But the other interesting thing about her is after she left Welch's office, she then went on to do an internship in pediatrics. <laughs> so she went to New York. This is Baby's Hospital, which was part of uh, Columbia. 
and she was the first pediatrics resident there. Wow. And, and actually, she went on to have spend most of her career in public health and, uh, and, and, and really study childhood and maternal illnesses. So really a, an incredible, incredible figure at, 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 at the time she practiced. And, and really, I was, as I read this stuff, she was a superstar in medicine. Wow. Well, on that note, guys, uh, thanks for joining us for our first episode. Thanks, Bijan and Maddie, for being the first discussants and tackling this case. You guys did great. Thank, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great job, <laughs> Bijan and Maddie. Appreciate it. And Tommy, thank you uh, for your time and moderating the chat and just jumping in with the pearls and teaching points. It was, yeah, we appreciate it. it. Hope, hope it was helpful. All right. And with that note, uh, we'll sign off and see you guys uh, next time. Thank you. All right. Wow. Okay, question. Did Can it you stop? think? Can you hit end? Yep.